ANA Champions of Growth podcast. I'm Matthew Schwartz. CMOs face a massive wave of change, fueled by online media and digital communications. The rapid pace of change has led to some dramatic trends concerning CMOs, not the least of which is the stagnation in CMO tenure. According to executive search firm Spencer Stewart's latest CMO tenure study, the average CMO tenure was 40 months in 2020, the lowest since 2009. It's almost as if the decline in CMO tenure in the last decade or so is proportional to the rise in online advertising. Some brands are taking big steps to address the situation, with Bank of America and General Mills, for instance, getting rid of the CMO role altogether and moving marketing to different departments. Other brands are creating positions such as the chief experience officer, who could be an ally to CMOs, or a threat, depending on whom you ask. Either way, the pressure is growing on CMOs from the C-suite to demonstrate greater accountability and show a real impact on how marketing is spiking the top and bottom lines. Here to discuss the report and other challenges facing CMOs is Greg Welch, a partner at Spencer Stewart and author of the CMO study. Welcome, Greg. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Greg, I'd like to start off with a bit of relevant news that dropped yesterday. A major retailer is eliminating the CMO position and moving its marketing team under merchandising. This trend seems to be accelerating with some other household names making similar moves. So my question is, what do you think is motivating these brands that are getting rid of the CMO position altogether? Headlines like that seem to take over and overshadows what's really going on behind the scenes. I don't think it's alarming. It's not a trend in any way. We've seen a number of retailers and quite fang- frankly, we've seen some packaged goods companies change the title. The role of marketing at some of the biggest retailers has never been more important. As you would expect within a retailer, the relationship with merchandising is different than a packaged goods company or a restaurant company, as an example. And quite frankly, in many cases in these mega, mega sized businesses, it's not appropriate to have the job report to the CEO. And so whether he or she reports to a president or a merchant partner, I don't think it's a big deal. It's not a big trend. We've seen it over the years and it'll continue. And some of this is just title changes, but an executive leaving and or marketing now reporting to merchandising is not reason to smash the alarm bell in any way. Regarding the most salient aspect of the most recent Spencer Stewart CMO tenure study, uh, showing that CMOs at 100 of the most advertised U.S. brands lasted an average of 40 months in 2021. That remains the same as the previous year, but is in fact the lowest tenure since 2009. So taking the numbers together, Greg, how should marketers and the industry react to what's generally been a downward trend for the last decade among CMOs? It hit headlines when it first came out, I think at 23 months, when we first did it 18 years ago. And everybody loves to look at it and say, oh my gosh, the sky is falling here. The reality is it didn't change in the last year. It was consistent with what it was you before. We are now going to take a look at the study and look at it over 500 companies rather than just 100 most advertised. I think we'll see it go up. I'm quite confident that will be the case. And although you need to remember that this is a snapshot at the end of the year of who's in the chair and how long have they been there, we're quite careful in the way we calculate it. But what is not always clear is the fact of let's what's driving some of this change. And the reality is, if we look back in the last three years, there were 73 exits. Alarms go off sometimes when we think about they've exited the company or they were fired, and that's simply not the case. The fact of the matter is there were 73 CMOs that made moves. 77% of them took similar or bigger jobs elsewhere, and I don't mind rattling off some names. 40% of them ended up taking bigger jobs. Think of Michelle Peluso going from IBM to CVS. 
Allison Lewis, who's on the ANA board, I think, going to Kimberly Clark, Fiona Carter going to Goldman Sachs. I mean, so these are executives that took very, very significant jobs and they become part of the data. Uh, there are others like Rick Gomez at Target, who we proudly placed, who was promoted into a bigger job. So moving up and again at Target, the CMO does not report to the CEO, consistent with your point previously. Kristen Lemkow goes to JP Morgan in a wealth business in a big GM job. That all these changes look like there's rippling effect. And in many cases, it's good news for these talented marketers who are taking on bigger jobs elsewhere or being promoted inside. I appreciate you mapping that out and all the nuances involved here. But from a macro standpoint and the raw numbers, they're still, again, on a decline. From a collective standpoint, what do CMOs, what does the marketing industry need to do to start reversing these numbers? There are times when short tenure is tied to bad cultural fit. We think there's things that we can do to ensure a better fit. Uh, we think there are things we can do to make sure that CEOs are aligned with the new executive coming in or being promoted from within on what those expectations should be. We think we need to do a better job and we're continuing to get better at it to make sure that if you're a candidate, that you've got the skills needed to be successful in this job. The headlines that have grabbed everybody's attention have actually been a positive thing in regard to let's figure out how do we help an executive get off to a great start, find the right fit. Let's figure out, do your skills and, and aspirations match what this company is looking for? So I think we're getting better about all of that. It's really important to understand that we're looking at a bit of a vacuum at CMO trends. Back it up and you'll see data from us shortly to talk about, well, how do we compare? And the fact of the matter is when I look at CHROs, I look at heads of supply chain, I look at CIOs, I think we're going to share with you that their tenure is below what we're seeing with CMOs. So it's not like we're segregated. I think we were the first to bring the news about marketers and this what feels like a lot of disruption in these top 100 companies. But the fact of the matter is maybe 40 months or if it's higher, when we look at 500 companies, maybe that's appropriate. That's another debate. It's not like the marketer is the laughingstock of the C-suite by any means. I do want to talk about some of the positive elements mm -hmm. in the study, particularly gains in the marketing industry among women with uh, the latest report showing that 71% of freshman CMOs in 2021 were women, up from 52% in 2020. And overall, about half of the CMOs included in the tenure study were women. Well, I, I would tell you, we're, we're super proud of it. I mean, all these placements aren't ours. And so I'm speaking on behalf of the, my marketing brethren and, and all changes that are made. We're blessed that the marketing population has tended to have amazingly talented females. And you couple that great talent pool with clients that are saying, we're going to be more proactive and making sure that we improve the distribution of our C-suite uh, gender and ethnic diversity in every regard. And so you've got this perfect, beautiful storm to say, listen, we're lifting up some talented women that deserve these chairs. Clients are being more focused about it. We're improving the quality of slates that we take clients. And I think it's a positive thing. Part of what I'm also looking at is the tail. So let's think of, I've got a daughter that's in marketing at ConAgra. And you think of these young women that are looking up and saying, listen, I, I've been working for a female CMO for many years now. I can aspire to that job. And I, and I think the marketing pool in general and the industry is really ripe to stand up in the future about having great representation across all classes. And you said, staying on this question, you see some, we had an ANA study showing that many women, middle management, but some struggle getting to the C-suite. 
But you see that now, however, gradually, or perhaps more than gradually, changing where you're having, um, where the number of women in the C-suite is reflecting the number of women in the industry. I actually think the marketing playbook is a playbook that other functions should should take a peek at. I mean, when we look at, I don't think the industry is proud when you look at diversity in general at the C-level, as an example. I think there are six black CEOs in the Fortune 500. Nobody's comfortable with that. That's 1.2%. When you look at COOs and divisional CEOs, only 4% are ethnically diverse. The good news is we've seen great strides in women. They're ahead of where we are on underrepresented groups in general. But I'm optimistic. And quite frankly, when I look at the funnel, and I've done some work with the ANA previously on this to figure out how do we market the marketing industry to college grads? I'm on the Indiana Kelly Business School Board. And when I talk to young people about what they want to do, marketing is not always the first thing they mention. They're intrigued by investment banking or areas that may appear sexier. Part of what we've got to do is get talented young people excited about the art of marketing. And I think the ANA and other groups are doing a nice job with college campuses to reinvigorate that. And, you know, I'm actually, it's not my place to be proud of the industry, but when I look at the ANA and I look at other groups that are holding hands with each other to say, how can we make marketing and the profession of what we do be more proactive in the market? I want to plant seeds for the future. These talented young people that are going to go on and do more things. And and I'm confident that both from underrepresented groups and more women are going to achieve that CMO chair, which is great news. And staying on this question in terms of the industry expanding its aperture when it comes to DEI, with regard to the study, overall, just 15% of CMOs in 2021 were from a traditionally underrepresented racial or ethnic group, up from just 13% in 2020. However, 18% of the incoming CMOs in 2021 come from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group compared with 11% in 2020. So how does the industry bolster those numbers, particularly when you consider a very fast changing complexion in the U.S.? I think we need to do a better job in my industry to improve the quality of slates. If there's five or six candidates on a slate, darn it, at least half of them come from an underrepresented group, and we're committed to that. And I've got clients that I know are also committed to it. When we look at the longer tail, I think what we've got to think about is how do we plant seeds of young talent inside these companies such that they're going to be ready? We can't make people up. Clients now more than ever are willing to look at different industries. So if I'm doing a financial services CMO search, maybe they'd consider somebody from healthcare or from an e-commerce tech startup or from hospitality and leisure. And so not just looking at likely suspects of like industries helps open up talent. We're going to plant more people earlier down inside the organization. And the other thing that's gone on, which is a positive trend, is companies are getting it now. How do we create an environment and an atmosphere inside our company where people of all walks of life are comfortable and feel like they can thrive and bring their whole self? So really two-pronged strategy, getting out into the field, moving away from traditional marketing precincts into other sectors in terms of sussing out the talent. But then once you bring in the talent, companies need to ramp up the nurturing, ramp up the communication on what is your career track. Because we both know with these younger people, they want to know where they're going. They want to know it quickly and frequently. So is this a communications question? 
I think it's our, our inner being. And we all see in all walks of life biases that exist every day. Let me give you one example. On a typical search, uh, my colleagues and I may bring forward five or six candidates on a slate. And when I look back at what would typically happen historically, if we had one candidate from an underrepresented group, it kind of emphasized, overemphasized the bias that could exist. Whereas if there's two or three and we're stacking them up on a panel versus others, it creates a safer zone. It allows us to think differently about what skills somebody might bring. And then I think we, we just need to change the way we operate. We tend to look historically, clients look for people that look and speak and act the way they do, the activities they enjoy. And we just need to erase that. We need to change and to figure out how can you bring your whole self to work. Companies are changing the way they think about the work environment. Silver lining, perhaps, of COVID is this idea that you can work from anywhere. Mm-hmm. And where we've got executives that typically would not leave certain geographies or go to certain geographies, that's been a net positive for us. You'll be intrigued to know that we've placed hundreds of executives over the last couple of years that never shook hands. You know, mm-hmm. entirely virtual recruitment processes, which is on one hand, oh my gosh, like amazing. And on the other hand, it's a bit daunting. But the good news is it's changing the way we work. Not to be Debbie Downer, but um, but getting back to the decline in mm-hmm. CMO tenure. How much comes down to CMOs not being conversant financially and missing the mark on tech? What, what I would tell you is I, I don't think that's it. I do think the, the rate of change in marketing technology is as fast as Maybe CIOs are dealing with more tech change than marketers are, but these jobs are not for the faint of heart. They're very, very difficult. I do recall a former CMO who became a CEO when I asked him a month into the job, was there anything you felt ill-equipped to handle? And he said, and we were in Germany at the time, and he said to me, I now need to make capital expenditure calls on buy, rent, make partner, and I felt ill-equipped on it. Now, this was a $60 billion company, but the fact of the matter is every CMO I know probably continue to brush up their financial skills, but make no mistake, this is a bright bunch. That's why many of them are moving on to big CEO jobs. So they're pretty well equipped on that front. They do need to make sure they've got talented, younger people perhaps around them on the social and digital and evolution of what's going on on media buying and things. I mean, it's hard to keep up with it all, but I always remind people to say, be a leader first, a marketer second, because Mm -hmm. really you're a general manager of a function. This talent pool of these folks that are in these big CMO jobs, they're amazing executives. But at the same time, the onus is on the market or is on the CMO to really deepen that bench and to provide that infrastructure and that support needed financially. One of the things I do worry about is in this day and age where specialization is absolutely needed. Think of the, don't put baby in a corner. You want to make me a social media expert. No, I really want to be a broad gauge marketer and I don't want to be put in that corner. And so I do worry a little bit about these young marketers that are being asked to specialize and whether it's loyalty or customer experience or, you know, you pick it. The best CMOs I know are figuring out how do you hire talented people that fit well culturally, are curious and can drive innovation, but you got to move them around because otherwise they'll leave you. Is the rise of other C-level roles in the last few years, chief purpose officer, chief experience officer, chief revenue officer, a potential boon or threat to CMOs? What about the expanded CMO role? Something you refer to as CMO plus. 
The good news is, and, and pick a title, whether it's chief commercial officer or customer officer, or experience officer, we've seen a changes for a variety of reasons in that regard. Sometimes that's caused, by the way, with CMOs making a move and they don't want to go CMO to CMO. And so they beg for a slightly different title. Retail in particular, like you started this off, we see many chief commercial officers, which oftentimes combines sales, marketing, merchandising as an example. I'd like to think that our CMO pool, if they own the customer, they're in a good spot to win. One of the areas we've seen an explosion in the last couple of years, as you would expect, CDOs, chief digital officers we've seen, which sometimes does or does not report to the CMO. We've seen a new focus on chief experience officer. We've, of course, seen sustainability in some other areas that I don't think fragment the CMO job. What I encourage my talent pool to do is to embrace all of this. I think the CMO is in a great spot in the C-suite to have a hand in all that's going on. You know, think of chief experience as an example. And we're doing many chief experience officers for sometimes CMOs and sometimes sitting for presidents. I care not where it reports necessarily, but I certainly hope and I believe the best CMOs are focused on how can I drive an end-to-end -end customer journey and experience which benefits my company. I think the CMO, I think he or she is in a great spot to own that person. What factors are driving your clients when it comes to hiring CMOs right now? A positive trend that I touched on before is improving the, dis excuse me, the diversity overall in the C-suite. I think that's coming from a good place. And the good news is we've got talent that we think can answer that. I think there's disruption from not only outside of the country, but from online startups that are causing big companies to wobble and didn't see that coming, making sure we're focused on distribution. I think the location piece that I mentioned briefly before is changing our ability. I work for a large packaged goods company that's in a small town that not many people want to live in, in some cases. And the fact that we now can hire talent from major metros or others that maybe wouldn't have been comfortable living there before is a good thing. I'm, I'm the opposite of Debbie Downer. I, although we're really, really busy right now, I think our clients are on it. Their minds are open to new talent. Stay with us. There's a lot more to come. We now take a break for a brief message regarding ANA Newsstand. The ANA produces four in house publications covering the latest developments and trends in B2C, B2B, brand purpose, and across the industry at large. With practical insights from leading brand marketers, agency partners, and industry experts, our publications are designed to give marketers the real world intelligence they need to drive growth and boost their value. Find the publications at ana.net slash newsstand. And now back to our show. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Greg Welch, partner at Spencer Stewart, about the downward trend in CMO tenure and other challenges facing chief marketers. Greg, a recent Boathouse survey shows that 56% of CEOs believe their CMOs are more selfishly committed to themselves more than their CEO and board of directors, and 70% of CEOs believe their CMOs would save their own rear end before considering the CEO. Pretty harsh stuff. Think it's fair? I don't know the details of that study, but if we take it at face value, uh, it pains me to think that that might exist. I would like to think that your boss and mine would feel like I have the best interest of the company or the firm in mind, but let's assume that's true for a moment. What? How could we get there? Well, I'd, I'd ask you to take a scroll through LinkedIn, take a peek at posts. So you got to think about the marketing personalities. They're not a bashful bunch. They're silver-tongued. They've got stories to tell. They're brand builders. And sometimes that brand building extends to themselves in the market. Even when you look at LinkedIn about someone that said, oh, look, I made the list of most innovative CMOs in the world. 
That's self-promotion. And yes, it happens. I think it's more likely that we see a marketer do that than CFOs, as an example. But it's the irony in this is when I think about somebody like Mark Pritchard, who's been the long time, I think he's been in the chair 170 months at Procter & Gamble, a, a legend in the industry. I don't think I've ever seen that man tout himself ever in any way. Is there a correlation between self-promotion and success in the chair? I don't know. That's a big leap. There are some talented people that do tend to self-promote a bit. And I'd like to think or suspect that maybe that's part of what Boathouse picked up on. If I were a, guiding a CMO, I would say, go have a conversation with your boss and let's make sure he or she knows exactly what's motivating you, that you're with them, that you care most. I mean, because that sort of gap shouldn't exist in any direct report relationship as far as I'm concerned. And aside from cultivating those relationships in the C-suite, do CMOs just need to treat their role as a business person first and marketer second? It sounds pretty fundamental. On one hand, when you think about the exciting marketing plans for the year, many CMOs, of course, and rightfully so, want to share that with the rest of the company. People like to see the new shiny ads and the new way we're going to launch a product, and, and that's exciting stuff. Sometimes the way that we do that makes people think that's all they're about, is that shiny new commercial. And of course, that's not fair. Uh, but if you're not talking about the business issues first, you could be accused of that over time. The very best CMOs I take notes from, as I watch the ones that are a business person first, they just happen to be doing marketing. The best CMOs I know are able to add value about capital expenditures or real estate decisions or locations or what out, you know, a broad array of topics beyond marketing. You need to be a business leader in that C-suite small table, adding value beyond your own function. Let's take that as a baseline, that the CMO is delivering on all those assets you mentioned. I wonder if in terms of the CMO tenure and this uh, two to four year window that a, lot, that a lot of them meet, I wonder if the onus is entirely on CMOs here. Do CEOs need to open their aperture and squeeze perhaps a little bit more patience from the tank? I think it's a good call out. And one of the things that when we've looked in the rearview mirror and said, hey, there were CMOs that weren't in the chair long enough, perhaps where it didn't work out, whether they felt like it wasn't a good cultural fit and they took a job elsewhere or they didn't do well and they were taken out. I think setting fair expectations with the CEO on the front end. And I can tell you, I personally and my team, we spend a lot more time making sure we're crystal clear about that. On the front end, we encourage CMOs and CEOs to have the conversation. I say, let's talk about what winning looks like. Until you get smacked in the face with a competitive threat that you didn't count on or a downturn in the economy, things change. And we can't always anticipate that for sure. But to get people to talk about it, there is no miracle drug. There's nothing that's going to have a CMO come in and immediately take the company in a very different direction. And I get to have those very candid conversations with CEOs. And even with the best intentions, there are times where things just change. But laying out, helping a new CMO talk about how do you get up to speed quickly on a great 100-day plan? How do you think about building relationships with the rest of the C-suite on the front end? How do you find out, hey, you run supply chain. Can you tell me what you'd like to see more from the marketing team or not? The best ones know how to get in and quickly figure that out. COVID's made it a little more difficult in some regard that you don't get the personal FaceTime that you might have had, at least in person. I think we're getting better as an industry, and I don't think that's why we see 40-month tenure. 
How much of CMO tenure is tied to the divide between those CMOs grounded in the science of marketing and those CMOs, perhaps those boomers and Gen Xers conditioned analog and the art of marketing? What are some of the remedies for bridging that divide? We've seen a pendulum shift over the last, I'd say, four or five years, where if you think of creating magic marketing, pretty commercials and brand messaging to performance marketing on this side, there's been a trend away from the pretty ads to say, listen, I need a performance marketer. We wrote a piece called the Da Vinci Growth CMO, which is essentially looking at the man and reading the book spurred me to think about this. On one hand, he was a mathematician. Uh, he thought he was a doctor. You know, he was an architect. He was an engineer. And on the other hand, he was a master storyteller and sculptor and artist. And this notion of thinking about how can I have the best of what he had and somehow sit in the middle. And I think this idea of being a Da Vinci growth marketer is one that brings both performance math and creative art together. Then something that we can think about. And I think it's a good, you know, self-inventory to look in the mirror and say, okay, am I underdeveloped in one area or another? But I certainly, I'll tell you, our clients of the last couple of years have been all about the quant side, the performance side. But in this day and age, I think consumers really care about magic with brands. And we look for people that have both. So marketers need their own DaVinci code? To be successful in this day and age, you, you better have a special playbook for sure. And as we start to wrap up, Greg, what's your take on the rise of the so-called fractional CMO or CMOs working on a part-time or as-needed basis? Yeah, surprisingly, it's not as fiscally beneficial as you might think because fractional CMOs tend to charge at least quarterly. They don't get healthcare and whatever. And we've seen a number of startup businesses of very talented former CMOs that said, I've still got something to give, but I'd rather work for two or three clients at a time. There's something there. I actually like the idea. And what part of what I do like about it is if you're a former CMO and you're sitting at home and you can shoot it, parachute into a company, what I'd call kind of no bull, no agenda, no political aspirations with the peers, but rather I want to get it right. And sometimes we've seen fractional CMOs come in and help kind of clear the deck and lay expectations about what it's going to take to bring in a CMO. There, It may surprise you, but there's times that I've turned down searches where I didn't feel like the organization was ready to accept an outside executive and instead say, hey, can you let Susie or Jimmy come in and help us get this thing right? And maybe in six months, we'll be in a better place to do it. I, I don't think we'll see a great emergence of it, but there are absolutely times where that could pay dividends. And, and the fact of the matter is there's some great talent on the sideline that would never take a full-time job that might be able to help us for three months. So I'm generally predisposed to, to kind of like the concept. But in the reality, do you have a take on whether, again, if these positions start to proliferate, then it gives the CEO and CFO more of a comfort zone to have that sort of part-time CMO? And does that not, again, in the long term, erode the long-term value of the CMO? We'll see bleeps and pockets where it could be highly effective. I do not think it's going to erode the long-term stable CMO because you can't build relationships with your C-suite brethren and sisters in, in the C-suite. And it requires somebody on the ground that cares deeply about one mission. And it's the same mission that all the C-suite holding hands are, are believing in. And an outsider can't do that. There are situations where I think it could be good in a short period of time. There are situations where, hey, I need three or four months to get a search done, yet I need somebody tomorrow. Well, hey, this person could help you balance the ship and help people in the short term, but I don't think it's going to erode in any way longer term, nor will it become a bigger force, I don't think. And flip side of the coin, and it may be an increasingly select group, but there are many CMOs who are long tenured 
and who transcend that three to four year window that closes in on many CMOs. So from a strategic standpoint, Greg, what do CMOs have to do to keep that seat at the table in this tumult we're living in constantly? What's the vision for CMOs moving forward? If you ask those CMOs that have been in the chairs for, say, over 100 months, and I often look at this group from the front side row seat and say, what is it that they've got? They have enduring, trusted relationships with all of their peers. They are transparent in what's going well, what's not. They have those relationships such that they can get things done across the organization. And for a variety of reasons, I think it's just kind of a DNA, like-minded where you would never see a CFO throw a long-tenured CMO under the bus, which could happen in a situation where somebody's talking about the commercial of the month or the new promotion is going to deliver only to fall flat on its face. That does not help a great CMO or a CMO build enduring relationships over time. And the best ones I know are just transparent. They don't spin things. Sometimes the marketing talent pool is accused of hitting the spin cycle too often. That's not what's going to work. You need to be authentic. You need to be vulnerable. You need to be transparent. And you need to be willing to take feedback from the CFO or the head of operations or field sales on what do you want from me as your CMO and how can we get better? Greg, some very illuminating comments on a lot of stuff that the CMOs can put in their back pocket and make actionable. I want to move to our lightning round question, which is what is the most important challenge facing CMOs right now? Get your team right. And your team right does not mean your direct reports. You know, we talked a minute ago about this notion of specialization and darn it, you better bet it have the best loyalty person, the best insight person on the planet that you can get. I'm more worried on the planting seeds out down the road. And I think to challenge each of your direct reports to have great diversity of thought, of ethnicity, of gender, of experiences. And we believe diverse teams yield better results. CMOs get so caught up sometimes in doing the marketing that this idea of talent planning down the road is not where we need it to be because you and I are going to need more Latino or Asian or African-American CMOs down the road. And the great ones are planting those seeds now to bring you know great talent up the ranks. And we'll have to leave it there. Big thanks to my guest today. Greg Welch, partner at executive search and consulting firm Spencer Stewart. To learn more about the company's annual CMO study, check out spencerstewart.com. If you would like to recommend a guest or topic for a future episode, please email me at mschwartz at ana.net and be sure to subscribe to Champions of Growth wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all for now. I'm Matthew Schwartz. Thanks for listening.